Hello and welcome to South Asia Chat, a podcast series brought to you by the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. I'm your host, Nitya Subramanian, an editor at the Institute. And with me today is Dr. Danish Khan, Assistant Professor of Economics, Franklin Marshall College, Pennsylvania, USA. He is here to talk to us about the state of Pakistan's economy, which has been facing many obstacles. He will talk to us about the growth numbers, the impact of the CPEC, the impending IMF loan, and the Afghan situation. Um, thank you for joining us today, Dr. Danish. Thank you, Nithya. It is my pleasure and honor to be here with you. My first question to you basically is on the Pakistani economy itself. It had performed quite well in uh, 2021 compared to 2020. And the country seemed to have handled the COVID-19 pandemic very well with its smart lockdowns and other initiatives. However, we read today that the economy seems to have taken a sharp hit with high inflation, leading to an increase in consumer prices, wide trade deficit and large debt. Despite this, the governor of Pakistan Central Bank in a Bloomberg interview, Dr. Uh, Mr. Reza Bakir, has pegged the growth rate at over 5%. Could you share your thoughts on the shape of Pakistan's economy and the reasons for the governor's optimism? Thank you for this question. There's a lot in it, and I'll try my best to, um, to elaborate on the points you have raised. So you have highlighted three major macroeconomic issues uh, of Pakistan in your question. Number one, the current account deficit, two, debt, and number three, inflation. So although these variables are interconnected, but they have their unique dimensions as well. And let me briefly elaborate on this. So first of all, uh, as you have rightly pointed out, the year 2021 was relatively better than the year 2020 in terms of the economic growth numbers in Pakistan. And this is generally true for other countries as well. In my opinion, there are two major reasons behind improvement in economic growth numbers in 2021. Number one, the obvious one is the, is the fact that COVID-19 vaccine became widely available in 2021, which restored uh, people's and business confidence, and in particular, uh, the hard hit sectors such as tourism, transportation, and hotel industry rebounded from their 2020 lows. And second, and there, is, has been a lag effect of the stimulus package that was provided by the government in 2020 and in early 2021. So both of these factors collectively led to increasing economic growth in 2021. But as economies started to accelerate, it created a widening current account deficit. And this is a recurring structural issue of Pakistan's macroeconomy because the economic growth in Pakistan is consumption driven and Pakistan's local productive capacity is very limited, which makes economy highly dependent on imports. Therefore, whenever economy accelerate, we see rise in consumption, which leads to increase in imports, 
and the widening of the current account deficit. And to finance this deficit, government borrows money from IMF and other international financial institutions, which leads to increasing debt. Here, I would like to underline that we need to differentiate between local and foreign debt because debt denominated in Pakistani rupees is not the major macroeconomic challenge for Pakistan, but it is the debt denominated in US dollar which poses a major macroeconomic challenge for Pakistan. Now let me address the issue of inflation. Of course, there are multiple drivers behind inflation. First of all, we are observing inflation globally. I'm sure you have seen hike of price in Singapore. I have seen here in Lancaster. But inflation in Pakistan is not just high, but it is among the highest in the region, right? Thus, we cannot simply explain inflation in Pakistan as an outcome of rise in international commodity prices. Of course, that, that plays a key role, but that's not the whole story. There are localized factors which have led to rising inflation. And this is directly tied to monopoly power and cartelization across many sectors of the Pakistani economy. Therefore, high prices in Pakistan are tied to super profits for some groups of people, for example, owners of sugar mills. On the other hand, average consumer in general and working people in particular are suffering the most due to higher tax prices. So this is the overall macroeconomic environment in which the Pakistani economy is today. So I'm not sure what is the rationale behind uh, Dr. Bakir's optimism, especially given the fact that now we are seeing contractionary fiscal and monetary policy in place, at least since last two months. Interest rates have been increasing and the government has withdrawn tax exemptions. So therefore, I don't see 5% growth rate as, uh, up as possible in the given macroeconomic environment. Thank you for that um, deep perspective. Uh, I'd like to move to something which is happening currently in Pakistan. We've been reading over the last week that uh, the Pakistan cabinet has recently approved a supplementary budget, which is being dubbed as mini budget, seeking to withdraw sales tax exemptions, as well as introducing new duties to revise the tax collections in order to meet the IMF requirements and to access the uh, $6 billion loan that IMF has offered uh, to provide the country. Uh, the bill will now be voted by the parliament. Uh, given the current political conditions, do you think the government, it will be easy for the government to push through this? And, but more importantly, what are the wider implications of these new tax rules? Well, on the surface, uh, it seems like that PTI-led coalition government uh, should have the numbers to pass the bill. But there are also some media reports which uh, argue that there's a lot of resentment uh, within members of the Treasury benches on some parts of this bill. And given how unpredictable and volatile Pakistan's political landscape is, 
I wish I had the crystal ball so I could foretell which way the parliament will vote on the supplementary budget bill. But as far as the second part of your question is concerned, uh, that is the potential economic implication of this bill, assuming it gets passed and implemented uh, in coming weeks, I can say with a decent amount of confidence that it will further increase or it will accelerate the inflationary pressure and it will slow down the pace of economic growth. And that, that was my point earlier as well, that government has now we see both contractionary fiscal and monetary policy. Here, if you allow me, I would like to briefly mention that in addition to supplementary budget, there's another bill up for vote uh, in the parliament on so-called autonomy of the state bank. And in more simple words, this bill is about redesigning the relationship between the State Bank of Pakistan, which is the central bank in Pakistan, and the finance ministry. But what does this bill actually change is, is the real point, right? Well, if the bill passes, then the finance ministry would not be allowed to borrow from the state bank, but instead it can only borrow from private commercial banks. In my opinion, this will substantially reduce government's fiscal autonomy and the bargaining position relative to private banks. It would also make the cost of borrowing more expensive for the central government because the borrowing from private banks costs government at least 2% more vis-a-vis -vis the State Bank of Pakistan. And this can also pose serious questions about the financial sustainability of the government because historically, the central government of Pakistan has been getting favorable rescheduling of its loans from the state bank. In other words, the government opens up a new line of credit to pay back its previous loans, right? That has been the norm. But if this bill passes through, a government will not have this option anymore. And Last, State Bank has been supporting the quasi-fiscal initiatives of the government, such as the subsidized loan programs. And, and again, if the current amendment passes, there'll be an end to these uh, operations as well, which will substantially reduce the fiscal space of the, of the federal government. I would now like to move on to some of the borrowings that uh, Pakistan has made, especially the loan that it has secured from Saudi Arabia. Uh, again, uh, it is being said that there, were, there are several stringent uh, conditions attached to this $3 billion loan, which includes a 4% interest rate and stiff default clauses. What are your views on this deal and how will it help in addressing the challenges faced by the country's economy? And again, these are like events taking place in last few weeks. And, and given whatever information is available, uh, we can only speculate. So, uh, but Saudi Arabia has been the lender of the last resort for Pakistan um, for many years, right? So the influx of $3 billion and $1.2 billion oil deferred payment um, has provided temporary relief to the foreign exchange reserves of Pakistan. But as you rightly pointed out, 
this money comes with stringent conditions, right? And we have seen in the past um, these sorts of loans um, come with some strings, particularly the geostrategic strings, right? And it, it has pushed Pakistani government towards geostrategic rent-seeking activities. So therefore, I feel Saudi Arabia's current economic package needs to be contextualized against the backdrop of changing geopolitical situation in the region. Uh, for example, there's a general perception that Pakistan's role and influence in Afghanistan is likely to expand since the Taliban has overtaken Kabul. Not to mention Saudi Arabia has other geostrategic interests in Pakistan, particularly with respect to Pakistan's other neighbor, Iran. Therefore, uh, I don't see much positive economic transformation from this loan deal, right? It can just provide temporarily foreign exchange reserve relief, but uh, the major economic reforms that are needed have uh, in fact nothing to do with uh, these sorts of uh, geostrategic loan packages. You have uh, very nicely brought in the Taliban angle, which segues well into my next question. Um, uh, we've uh, we know the we know the influence uh, that Pakistan has on the Taliban administration, and do you think this would have any impact on uh, Talib Pakistan's economy? Because again, there have been uh, reports of uh, the Afghan situation leading to greater demand for the U.S. dollar, and this has led to the depreciation of the Pakistani rupee. The State Bank of Pakistan too has implemented certain restrictions to prevent hoarding as well as checking the flight of US dollars. So do you think the current crisis in Afghanistan will have an impact on Pakistan's economy? And if so, how? Yeah, I think again, another evolving situation. And Yes, there have been media reports of dollar being smuggled into Afghanistan from Pakistan. And in response, uh, lately, State Bank of Pakistan has taken administrative measures uh, such as they have restricted foreign currency exchange per family to only $100,000 per year, right? And some other measures as well. And I don't see or I don't expect outflow of dollar from Pakistan to Afghanistan becoming a major issue in, in the future, right? I think the major uh, reason for the depreciation of the rupee is that the current account deficit uh, in Pakistan. But of course, there will be negative spillover effects uh, of the deteriorating economic situation in Afghanistan on Pakistan, right? For example, the economic meltdown in Afghanistan will have a can have a negative impact on Pakistani exports, right? Again, the volume is not that big, but again, it will have, a, have an impact uh, in terms of al already stagnated exports of Pakistan. Further, I mean, a lot of uh, Pakistani households, especially in the ex 
Fada regions, which are now called newly merged districts in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, have close ties with their counterparts in Afghanistan, right? They have been historically close. And any socioeconomic crisis on the Afghan side of the border will have a direct impact, especially on the families in newly merged districts, right? So, so in that sense, again, the political and economic instability in Afghanistan will lead to a negative, uh, will have negative impact on Pakistan as well, in my opinion. We'd also like to talk a little bit about the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which is a much talked about collaborative project between the two countries. Um, the government has maintained that everything, the project has been proceeding in full swing while the Chinese envoy recently said that most of the work for, mo for work for most of the projects have been completed. But there are, there are also reports of um, Baloch protests in, uh, in Gwadar. How and when do you think the CPEC will start bringing in benefits to the Pakistani economy? Well, um, let me first briefly talk about like what does CPEC mean, right, for our audience. Um, there are four broad dimensions of the CPAC. Uh, one is much talked about physical infrastructure, uh, road networks in particular. The second is the energy sector, especially the power plants, right? And Pakistan, especially um, from 2008 to 2013, had major power crises, right? And that's the context in which th these uh, power plants were uh, envisioned. Third is the industrial development via special economic zones. And the fourth is the development of Gavadar port. So main progress under CPAC have been in road infrastructure and power plants. But when it comes to industrial development um, via special economic zones and the development of Gavadar port in Balochistan, the pace has been much slower and there have been major setbacks as well especially in past two to three years, progress of CPAC projects have been extremely slow. And you have rightly pointed out that there have been massive protests in Gavadar led by local grassroots activists. Uh, what was really interesting about these protests were their political diversity. And by that, I mean uh, people from right, center, and left, right, and progressives all participated in these protests. For example, one key issue was that local fishermen uh, in Gavadar have been uh, displaced and they have lost access to their livelihoods, right? And there have not been uh, any alternative employment opportunities for them. And how to protect their livelihoods and to offer them decent living, decent employment opportunities has been one of the uh, organizing force in these protests. So, and, and, and overall, you'll be surprised to find out that Gavadar is still uh, not connected to the national grid of Pakistan, right? It is electrified via power supply from Iran. And there's mm -hmm. a massive level of poverty and deprivation among locals uh, in, in Gavadar. And this reflects the level of not just underdevelopment, but uneven spatial development across Pakistan. 
And as we know, economics, politics, and the distribution of power in any society are deeply interconnected with each other. Thus, in my opinion, in the current socio-political and economic environment, benefits of CPAC, if any, will remain limited to the privileged few and the historically disadvantaged segments of the society like local fishermen in Gavadar will continue to be um, excluded from these developmental projects. And that's the broader irony of these neoliberal developmental projects. Finally, um, we'd like you to do some crystal ball grazing and tell us how do you see the Pakistani economy faring in the in the coming in this year in this new year 2022? Uh, sure. First, basic uh, facts. Well, based on the trends, it seems like there'll be a continuous upward pressure on prices, and unemployment is likely to increase, and there'll be a downward pressure on economic growth. And in fact, as I mentioned earlier, Finance Ministry and State Bank of Pakistan have now explicitly um, told that they want to slow down the economy to curtail the widening current account deficit. Now, as I mentioned throughout our discussion, the, the, the recurring crisis of current account deficit uh, in Pakistan, which creates a problem of foreign exchange reserves, uh, these are just symptoms of a deeper structural issue in Pakistan's economy, right? And structural issues require structural reforms. And let me be clear here. I'm talking about structural reforms from the political economic perspective, right? So, but then what is the deeper structural issue at hand here? Well, the deeper structural issue in Pakistan is that economy is stuck in a low state equilibrium. And by that, I mean, there are cheap rents available for the elites to extract without necessarily expanding the productive capacity of the economy or engaging in technological innovation. As a result, we have witnessed a rise of new class of super rich and multi-billionaires um, billionaires, at least in terms of Pakistani rupees, in the new urban real estate sector, right? So as long as these cheap rents are readily available for the elites in Pakistan, the economy will move in circle and it will lack uh, the necessary innovation and technological advancement, which mandates creation of sustainable and decent employment opportunities for a large number of young people in Pakistan. So, so in that sense, I don't see much positivity if the business as usual continues, right? But of course, there always hope for some positive transformation. But this transformation, in my opinion, has to come from the below, from the people, uh, rather than the, from the top. Thank you so much, Dr. Danish, for your wonderful perspectives and uh, also joining us at South Asia Chat. We hope to have you some other time and have more detailed discussions on the various points that you have raised today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me today. You were listening to South Asia Chat. To learn more about our work, visit us at isas.nus.edu.sg. 
Also follow us on our social media handles such as Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thank you. 